Welcome to Life at the Academy, a midshipman-produced podcast that examines how the culture, traditions, and daily life of midshipmen have evolved over time. I'm midshipman Nels Waranimi, and I'm joined today by midshipman Calvin Tran. Nels, a question I have for you is, when leaving Loose Hall, have you ever noticed a unique pagoda statue sitting outside the doors? Yes, I have, and I have discovered recently that it has a very fascinating history behind it. It's a history that goes back to the Second World War. In the lead-up to the war, there was an ambassador from Japan in Washington, D.C. named Hiroshi Saito. And Hiroshi Saito was very well-connected in Washington, D.C. and very popular. When he died, one of his close friends, the president at that time, Franklin Roosevelt, used American naval ships to send Hiroshi Saito's body back to his family. And as a gesture of appreciation, Saito's family in Japan gifted that 13-tier pagoda to the Naval Academy, where it still stands today. That's an incredible piece of history, I think, especially the fact that monument was made during World War II must have had an interesting impact on the academy culture at the time, especially when you're thinking about midshipmen going outside and looking at a statue that or monument that is reflective of the quote unquote enemy of the time. I think it raised some really interesting challenges for the midshipmen at the Naval Academy at the time. There's a issue of the Log Magazine published in 1942 that actually talks about this challenge that midshipmen were facing. Because I'm sure there are some people even in the community who said, why is the Naval Academy who's fighting the Japanese, why do they have a statue from a Japanese family on the grounds of the Naval Academy? There's just a contradiction there. So the midshipmen at the time tried to answer that question. The editor of the magazine writes that the pagoda is a daily reminder to the midshipmen of what this country is fighting for and against, of the victory which must be won of the faith of those soldiers and sailors who have paid with their lives that others may live in freedom. So it's fascinating how they dealt with that question in their time as well. But Kelvin, the aim of our podcast is to look at the history of the culture of the Naval Academy. So why do you think in that context it's important to talk about a statue here on the yard today? I think monument and statues have an important impact on developing culture within the Academy. Starting from Plebeer in your reef points, they list out all the statues and the history behind them. And I think that the unique thing about monuments and statues is they really do reveal the values of the time and of what people were thinking of at the time. And it's important for us to examine these statues and understand why they were there. And they help continue that culture and continue the values that were held back then. But Nels, do you know anyone in the yard who was an expert about the history of this pagoda? Actually, I do. Last year, I had the chance to take a History of Japan class with Dr. Pennington, and Dr. Pennington is going to be our guest today. Lee Pennington is an associate professor of history who received his PhD in history from Columbia University. His research training focuses on modern Japan. Professor Pennington specializes in the social, cultural, and medical history of Japan from the 1930s through the 1950s, particularly with regard to how World War II both sprung from and shaped Japanese society. He is also a specialist in disability history. Professor Pennington's first scholarly book was Casualties of History, Wounded Japanese Servicemen and the Second World War. That was published with Cornell University Press in 2015. He is now working on a history of institutional medical care, examining both hospitals and clinics in Japan before, during, and after World War II. With that, here was our interview with Professor Pennington. Joining me today will be midshipman Peter Shainer. Professor Pennington, thank you very much for joining us today. 
Very much my pleasure. I'm happy to help out with the podcast and to see y'all. I've seen you in class before, but it's nice to meet Midshipman Shainer and uh, help out with y'all today. Yes, sir. I was going to mention that I had the privilege of taking your Japanese history class. And one of the things I took out of that was the great change in Japanese history and the progress and then the reaction to that progress. And so I was wondering if we could begin by giving us a little contextualization for the spot that Japan was in when Ambassador Hiroshi Saito was in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's a great question and a great place to start. Saito lived from the 1880s until 1939. And during his lifetime, he saw a lot of changes for Japan. Japan went through three emperors while he was alive. And during that time, you know, the specific details are different depending on the imperial period of time. But overall, Japan is seeing modernization, westernization, and imperial expansion. And maybe as a young man or a boy, Saito really had to sort of grapple with issues of modernization while Japan is becoming more industrialized and organized around a new central government. But certainly throughout his life, westernization was a big concern. Japan went through the Roaring Twenties, just like the United States. And so there's a lot of modern culture and modern life that's affecting how people act. But as we know, as Japan gets to the 1930s, it's really imperial expansion, the desire to create this new territory for Japan, to carve out an Asia for Asians, as the Japanese will call it. You know, Japan really has big power ambitions. And Saito is a diplomat. He's really having to navigate a lot of the tensions that emerge through those ambitions. I've got two follow-up questions on that. First of all, can you introduce us to Hiroshi Saito since he is the topic of our episode today? And the second is, where did Saito fit into that imperial ambition? Was he a supporter of it or was he more reticent to buy into that entirely? Sure. Saito, he actually comes from a family that's involved in diplomatic affairs. His father was an employee of Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He was actually a chief translator, which I think helps Saito to understand the importance of being um, conversant in English, which is one of his great skills. Saito comes to the United States in the early 1910s as an attache in the embassy of Japan that's located in Seattle. And is, he really spends this formative eight years here in the United States where it helps him to develop his skills as an English speaker, but also to learn how to uh, interact with Americans who are a particularly interesting sort of people. Saito becomes incredibly conversant in English and he picks up lots of slang. He knows how to speak and sound like a Native American, if we could say that. Uh, he also picks up American social habits. He plays bridge. He plays poker. He's a master at ping pong. You didn't want to go up against him. He starts drinking American uh, whiskey. He drink. He smokes American cigars. He really is becoming very conversant and understanding of American ways. He has uh, a role to play in a number of important political developments of the 1920s and 1930s. He's involved in the Washington Naval Conference uh, in the 1920s. Even before that, he's at the Paris Peace Conference at the end of World War I. He goes to uh, London as part of the uh, Japanese uh, attachment to the London Naval Conference. So he's all over the place, and it's really his language skills that are helping him out. He finally comes back to the United States, where he serves as a consul general. He becomes an ambassador 
to the Netherlands, and from there he is posted as the ambassador to the United States, which is a position he starts in 1934. So he has the chops. He has the skills necessary to be a master negotiator. And the challenge he's going to find is the United States he first encountered in 1910, particularly with its relation to Japan, is very different from what's happening in the 1930s. And Saito is going to be really in the thick of a lot of political negotiations between these two governments. Professor, was he a supporter of those changes that were taking place in the Japanese government at that time? I think Saito was a very good government employee. He took his orders. He sold them to the American people, meaning the ambitions and the plans of Japan. He remained critical in an intellectual sense, but I'm not sure about necessarily his attachment to the assertive military ambitions of Japan. That said, he's really not in a position to comment on that. What he needs to do is to present to the American people, once he's ambassador, the position of Japan and to do his best to facilitate Japan's position with regard to the United States and the world that it's seeking to expand into. Professor Pennington, Ambassador Saito is known for indiscreet diplomacy. Can you tell us more about that? Saito was a robust character. When he was first here in the United States, he clearly understood the importance of making connections and forming networks. And believe it or not, when he's here in the 1910s, one of the people that he forms a professional, friendly relationship with is someone you might have heard of, Franklin D. Roosevelt. So they were friends before Roosevelt became president. This is when Roosevelt is the assistant secretary of the Navy. And when Saito is you know, a low-level diplomat in Seattle, somehow he makes the acquaintance of Roosevelt. And I'm not going to say that they were close friends, but they were friendly enough that Roosevelt will continue to respect this friendship and to recognize Saito as a, as a trusted individual once the 1930s roll around. So by the time Saito is becoming ambassador, he has these really useful connections that he's made. And so he's not shy to build from those, but also to form new relationships that are going to help him politically when he's living in Washington, D.C. In addition to person-to-person political and professional relationships, Saito understood the importance of using the mass media to help him to convey to the American public Japan's plans and objectives. And I think these days we don't, at least it seems to me, we don't as often read diplomats' views in the popular press. But what Saito did during the 1930s is he wrote on a variety of topics, ranging from Manchuria to Commodore Perry's visit to Japan in the 1850s to even the cherry blossoms that are found in Washington, D.C. And through sort of a media-focused, almost casual or colloquial approach, he tried to convey to the people of the United States Japan's ambitions, but also to kind of keep a level of professional courtesy uh, at play between these two countries. You know, if the phrase is indiscreet, it's the fact that he wasn't content to sort of sit in an embassy and conduct diplomatic affairs from afar. He interacted with people in Washington, D.C. From everything I've read, he was a very popular diplomat. He was ran, he ran through many of the ambassador circles. Uh, he hosted dinner parties. He knew lots of folks. 
but also he reached out beyond Washington to speak to the people of the United States through the mass media, which was at the time, the print media, probably the easiest way for him to communicate with them. So he was not a shy diplomat. And as such, I think when he passes away, the response in Washington, D.C. is rather touching because they recognize him as an embedded member of the community. And I think as well, throughout the United States, if news reached certain people of the death of Saito, they would recognize him as a a public figure in Washington, D.C. Professor, was that unique among diplomats of the time to act in that way, or was it more common back then? That's a good question. I think probably a lot of the diplomatic policies taking place in the early 20th century were really driven by character and by uh, personal relationships. So I think Saito fit into this sphere. Whether or not he was atypical, that's something we're going to have to ask more historians of the day for their opinions on it. But he seems to be, to me, a bit atypical in what a Japanese diplomat may have acted like. Professor, would it be fair to say that while Saito was ambassador in Washington, D.C., during that time, the Japanese and American relationship was slowly deteriorating? Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. In 1931, Japan's military is going to invade Manchuria, which is to the north of China proper, and carve away territory to create a puppet state known as Manchu Kual. This is going to lead to increased tensions between Japan and other countries. Japan will drop out of the League of Nations, which it had been a very um, active member of. And in 1937, the situation is going to worsen for Japan diplomatically and in an international sense when war breaks out between China and Japan. Now, that's a regional war, and it leads into the Second World War. But some really unfortunate things happen in the 1930s that are going to affect the U.S.-Japan relationship. Most notably, in December of 1937, Japanese air forces are going to bomb a U.S. Navy ship in the Yangtze River. This is operating in the war zone that now exists in China. And this is going to cause a major uproar between the United States and Japan. And it's Saito who is going to have to negotiate and sort of calm the tensions between the two countries. The U.S. ship is there to protect American lives and properties in China, uh, where the fighting is breaking out. And in the course of those actions in the Yangtze, it's going to become the target of Japanese air forces. And Saito, he's going to have to explain the situation. He's going to have to apologize. He's going to assure the American public that Japan uh, is going to guarantee the safety of foreigners in China. So he really becomes involved in some of the tensions that are emerging between the United States and Japan in the late 1930s, which we we know now will develop into war by the time we get to the early 1940s. This may be too specific of a question, but who is his primary counterpart in Washington, D.C.? Would he speak directly with President Roosevelt? He's not speaking directly to Roosevelt. He's speaking to other ambassadors. He's speaking to the U.S. State Department. Particularly, there's a far eastern section in the State Department So he is communicating to the government of the United States. At the same time, he's communicating to the American public through these written statements and journals and magazines. But even though he's made this connection with Roosevelt during the early part of his career here in the United States, he's likely not having much direct interaction at a professional level with the president. But then again, he may be seeing him and speaking with him more casually. 
when uh, the political actions in D.C. turn into social actions as well. Professor, Ambassador Saito died on February 26, 1939. Can you explain how his remains were returned to Japan? This is a very interesting story. In 1938, Saito was diagnosed with tuberculosis, and he seeks treatment for that here in the United States. But the conditions worsen pretty quickly, and TB is really going to weaken him during 1938 and into early 1939. In fact, his state of health is going to become so poor that in October 1938, he retires from his position as ambassador and is in fact summoned back to Japan now that a new ambassador is coming to the United States. But he, Saito is so weak in his physical condition that he can't make that journey. And as a result, Saito is going to die as a consequence of TB in February 1939, and he passes away here in the United States. Interestingly enough, this sparks from both sides of the Pacific This moment in which the two sides think, hey, we could do something to help smooth over and perhaps improve relations between the United States and Japan. And as far as I know, what happens is the Japanese ambassador to Great Britain starts laying these hints to the American ambassador in London about wouldn't it be good if there was some sort of action or activity that would help to improve goodwill. And it seems like the U.S. ambassador in London doesn't pick up the hint. But at the same time, here in the U.S. State Department, in that far eastern division, officials there come up with the idea of repatriating Saito's remains to Japan aboard an American warship, which is something that's usually reserved for an individual who is of higher level politically than an ambassador. And this suggestion makes its way to guess whom? then President Roosevelt, who readily thinks that this is a great idea and who directs the U.S. Navy to send Saito's remains back home to Japan. The government of Japan responds positively to this, and in early March, the U.S. Navy directs the USS Astoria, which is a 10,000-ton, 600-crew heavy cruiser to repatriate Saito. And after preparations take place in Norfolk on March 16th, the Astoria drops anchor in the Severn River near the Naval Academy, and on the 18th, so two days later, under the eyes of Saito's widow and his two daughters, who were living in Washington, D.C., Saito's ashes are taken from the Naval Academy grounds to the Astoria, which then sets off on a month-long journey to Tokyo Bay via the Panama Canal and Honolulu to return Saito to his homeland. And in Tokyo, Japan's government has been planning this welcome reception for the Astoria that it believes will help to demonstrate the goodwill of the Empire of Japan towards the United States and to other countries. The Astoria arrives in Tokyo on the 17th of April. It anchors off the shore of Yokohama, stays there for 10 days, and Saito's remains are promptly taken from Yokohama to Tokyo, where a Buddhist uh, internment ceremony is going to happen at a major temple in Tokyo. During this time, crew of the Astoria is wined and dined in Japan. 
with the sailors visiting sightseeing attractions. While they've been warned to be on their best behavior, particularly because U.S.-Japan relations still remain rather tense. During this visit, Joseph Grew, who is the U.S. ambassador to Japan, he kind of grins and bears through these ceremonies that are designed to celebrate U.S.-Japan friendship, even though he knows that Japan's government is taking these steps diplomatically and militarily to strengthen its global position. Now, this isn't to say that the American or the Japanese side wants this symbolic ceremonial endeavor to fail, but both sides felt that it may not amount to much because the situation is deteriorating. And incidentally, when the Astoria leaves Japan, the first place it goes to is China, where it steams up the Yangtze River for a little bit of time, clearly in a response to the Panay incident of 1937 that worsened U.S.-Japan relations. But then the ship returns to the United States and arrives in California a few weeks later. Professor, did President Roosevelt or anybody else in the U.S. diplomatic corps think that this move would materially influence the relationship between Japan and the United States? Or was it just a personal act of friendship? It seems that friendship, both at a personal level between Roosevelt and Saito, but also at a diplomatic level between the United States and Japan, friendship was the determining factor. Really what was driving this this situation of repatriating Saito, Saito to Japan. I'm not going to say that no one had hoped that this would help the situation, but events were moving quickly with Japan's war in China and increased worry over Japan's ambitions in the Pacific. So this may have cooled some of the heat that was starting to emerge, but it wouldn't have been able to douse the fire. Professor, did President Roosevelt receive any criticism for his decision to repatriate Ambassador Saito's remains? And what was Japan's reaction to the United States' decision? I'm sure that at the level of government discourse, so within the U.S. government, there was criticism. Diplomats and politicians and staffers would have seen this as uh, a pretty transparent move to try to smooth over the worsening relations between the two countries. At a popular level, I'm sure it was couched in the media of the day as a great symbol of the friendship across the Pacific. Roosevelt might have been criticized for his enthusiasm to repatriate his friend's ashes, but it's likely that Roosevelt himself heard much direct criticism from the public, and if it was coming from the government itself, the U.S. government, that criticism would have been muted. Within the State Department, certainly there was a lot of discussion that this may not go anywhere. And even within the Japanese government, There's recognition that this was a symbolic move, but it may not be a very successful diplomatic move. Again, there were high hopes, and there certainly was criticism, but I bet Roosevelt himself remained a bit out of and above the fray that emerged. How did the Naval Academy receive the stone pagoda that is currently displayed outside of Loose Hall? That's a great question. So we know that Saito has passed away in early 1939. Into the summer, his remains are repatriated. His family returns to Japan, not on the U.S. warship, but his family repatriates to Japan. In October of 1940, Saito's family, as a sign of appreciation for the repatriation of Saito's remains, is going to gift to the United States, particularly the Naval Academy, 
the 13-tier stone pagoda that currently sits outside of Loose Hall. So it's a token of appreciation for the repatriation. And notice the date. It is happening before the onset of World War II, at least the American War in December 1941. So this is a move that takes place before the situation truly deteriorates, but also it's a private act. It's from Saito's family to the U.S. Navy. Certainly the government of Japan would have facilitated that and encouraged it, but the gift itself was a private gift to the Naval Academy. Now, Professor, is it correct that this pagoda was displayed on the Naval Academy grounds during World War II? It was. It's a bit questionable, at least in my mind, if it was always outside Loose Hall. For example, I have here with me a 1941 guidebook to the Naval Academy that includes a map of the grounds and a list of memorials and monuments, names of the buildings, and the Saito Memorial is not included. Now, granted, the memorial might have arrived again in October 1940 and not been put up by the time this 1941 pre-Pearl Harbor guidebook was written, but it's not here. However, I also have with me an October 1942 issue of The Log, which is published here at the Naval Academy, and the cover photograph shows the Saito Memorial sitting right outside Loose Hall in its current location. So it was here during the war years, and midshipmen didn't know what to think of it. They recognized it was gifted to the Academy before World War II, but even so, it's regarded as sort of a thumb in the eye of the U.S. Navy because of the worsened situation now post Pearl Harbor. And to add to the situation and even worsen it even further, the USS Astoria is going to be sunk by the Japanese Navy in August of 1942. So the ship that carried the remains to Japan is now a casualty of the war between the United States and Japan. And so this issue of the log, it has a cover photograph and it has a statement about the memorial, which is a bit terse and not very detailed, but it's certainly very cool. So according to this official publication, if we can call it that, we know that the memorial was here, but we know that midshipmen didn't care so much for its presence, particularly because of the war situation between the two countries. And I know I've seen in other places that midshipmen of the day in the 1940s would refer to the memorial as the FU memorial because of what had been happening between the U.S. Navy and Japan after Pearl Harbor. That's interesting. I, I remember from your class talking about World War II, the racialization of the war that began to take place and the anti-Japanese sentiment that existed in the United States. So to have on the Naval Academy grounds a statue of the man who represented the very government that would attack U.S. Navy ships on Pearl Harbor, it's a fascinating contradiction. It is. And what's interesting about this October issue of the log, which midshipmen can find in the library here at the Naval Academy, is in this description, there's this very curious little phrase calling the memorial, quote, a little corner of Japan conceived in peace, end quote, that is here at the Naval Academy. So again, I think on a everyday sense, midshipmen referred to the memorial in certain ways and didn't care for it. 
But at the same time, there is recognition that it represents a moment when U.S.-Japan relations were peaceful and positive, or as positive as they could be, and therefore we don't see, for example, the memorial demolished or moved or even defaced, I don't think, by midshipmen, because it was created at a moment before the relationship between the two countries went south. Professor, what does the choice to display the pagoda over 70 years after it was received tell us about the culture of the United States Naval Academy? I like to think that it says that it's important to forgive. Not forget, per se, because this war is such a war, particularly for the U.S. Navy. But 70 years later, 60 years later, 50 years later, it does, in my mind, represent the fact that even though this moment of tension exploded between the two countries, Japan and the United States, to say nothing of Japan and the world, time helps us to heal. It helps us to maybe better understand the motivations that lead to conflict and maybe not forget the conflict or forget that it it took place. But the monument, to me, it helps to indicate the lasting, enduring, and overwhelmingly positive relationship between Japan and the United States that certainly exists today, but I think really characterizes the long history of U.S.-Japan relations. And so the monument, the Naval Academy, Japan, the United States, the world, all weathered tough times, but the memorial itself, because it's both standing and standing at the Naval Academy, it really shows that not just American and Japanese relations, but U.S. Navy and Japan relations really are integral, they're resilient, and by having the monument here, if it is, quote, a little corner of Japan conceived in peace, end quote, you know, great that it's located on U.S. Navy property. Professor, the monument is currently outside Loose Hall, which is dedicated to the study of leadership and ethics. Is there any particular lesson beyond what you said about forgiveness that the pagoda could continue to symbolize for midshipmen as they begin their careers in the Navy or Marine Corps? I think tied to perhaps the ethos and the actions of Hiroshi Saito, always have hope. Even though times might get dark, times get tough, tough decisions have to be made. If someone approaches problems in a hopeful manner, sometimes solutions will readily present themselves. Now, sometimes we have to work at those solutions, and sometimes eggs and necks get broken, unfortunately. But even so, the monument to me, it's a, it's a hopeful monument. And it's one that demonstrates appreciation for the good relations between two countries. So hopefully, if midshipmen learn about the memorial, it can inspire them to be a a hopeful memorial here, but also to demonstrate that even though times may be tough for a period of time, times also turn around. Professor, we'd like to conclude with a segment about your personal experiences at the Naval Academy. So let's turn over to you, Peter, for the first question. Professor, what values have you sought to instill in midshipmen through your teaching and advising, and how has that changed over time? That's a great question. I think if I had to break it down to three points, which is something I like to tell midshipmen to do when they're writing papers or thinking about the past, I think values that I've sought to instill here among midshipmen are to be analytical, to be diligent, and to be empathetic. And in the courses I teach, which focus on Japan or East Asia, I like to give a lot of primary source materials drawn from that corner of the world that really challenge midshipmen to think about what's being said, 
to think about what might be being said, but to always use a critical analytical eye to better understand what these traces of the past are telling us. And so I've always encouraged midshipmen, no matter their major, to develop their skills at analysis, at critical reading, at critical thinking. And I think that it really defines part of what I see as my role here at the Naval Academy. At the same time, I encourage students to always be diligent. And diligent means paying attention to the small details. Some might say that my essay assignments have a lot of small requirements or expectations, but the fact is being a close reader, paying attention to detail, and knowing that this is not simply uh, a nitpicky challenge, but a way for someone to develop his or her reading or writing or oral presentation skills by being focused on details. This form of diligence, I think, is important for future Navy and Marine Corps officers. And lastly, I think as a historian, I've always been seeking for my students to become empathetic, to understand that even though people might have lived at another time or another place, people are people. And by using common sense and by thinking empathetically and by developing an awareness of what motivated people to act a certain way, which is often a set of motivations similar to what we see today, just in a different historical moment, by thinking about the past and human experience empathetically, I think this will also help midshipmen to develop into more effective officers and leaders in the fleet and the Corps, because they will learn to take a greater spread of concerns into consideration. Professor, one of the things that we're interested in in this project is analyzing the change over time of Naval Academy culture. Have you observed anything that you think has changed significantly during your time as a professor here at the Naval Academy in the culture of the brigade? Absolutely. I've been here at the Academy for about 15 years, and the number one thing I've noticed as a change is diversity in the makeup of midshipmen. And I know that diversity is spoken about a lot these days here at the Academy, but also in the United States, but I've really witnessed the Brigade of Midshipmen change during the past decade and a half. From students who in classes might have all seemed to have been a certain type to a much wider range of backgrounds and ethnicities and uh, genders and gender preferences. I've really seen a lot of diversity develop in the brigade, and that's a great thing. This is a really difficult school to describe to colleagues of mine who work at other universities because they always ask, what are the midshipmen like? And it's really hard to say that there's a standard midshipman that exists at the yard. What do you tell them, yeah. Professor? I'm going to keep that between <laughs> them and me. But the big picture point is there's great diversity here on the yard. And it really has changed in the last 10 plus years. And even though there's always a need for more change, sometimes we need to celebrate and acknowledge the change that's happened. And the Naval Academy, in terms of the brigade of midshipmen, is a very different place from when I started here a while ago. And it's really exciting to see how this diversity plays out in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom when I see midshipmen learning from each other, working with each other, and going through the midshipmen experience. Professor, I'm not asking you to compare in this question, but what do you think is unique about the Naval Academy in comparison to other institutions that you may have taught at or studied at? What do you think is special about this institution? Absolutely the sense of service. Not to make it about me, but when I took this job here at the Academy, I really was driven by a desire to be useful, to serve my country, to serve my students, 
to make sure that my work in life was meaningful and beneficial for people. And what I see here, the brigade is, there is a sense of service. It's deep-rooted. Sometimes it's difficult to express itself in the everyday busyness of being at the academy, but midshipmen are driven to be selfless leaders. They're driven to help other people, and that's a really good thing. And I think it's a universal characteristic here on the yard. And maybe not everyone in the world is driven to be useful to other people, to be animated by a sense of service. But I'm constantly struck by the fact that midshipmen not only want to do the right thing, and they're learning how to do the right thing, but it's a sense of service and a desire to be useful that's animating the learning that's going on and also animating their desire to be part of the fabric of the country. Professor, our final question for you today is, what aspect of the brigade culture would you like to see preserved in the future? I think the brigade is incredibly creative. And it may not seem like such with the uniforms and you know showing up for this brief at that time and then running off to another brief. Again, the Naval Academy can seem rather regulated. But underneath the surface, there's a lot of great creativity here in the brigade. And I hope that's something that continues to express itself and grow in the future. We see this in the literary production, such as the various magazines. We see this in the theatrical productions, the incredible choirs, the band here. There's lots of active, robust expression of this creativity. But what we professors and instructors also see, and I hope coaches and other staff members here see this as well, is the great expression of creativity that happens in a smaller scale. In the classes I teach, I try to mix analytical work with creative work. For example, I teach an on and off course called Gods and Monsters in Japanese History, which is a cultural study of Japan that focuses on impressions and views of monstrosity and deviance. You can learn a lot about a people based on what they are scared of or what they say they're scared of. And in that class, one thing I do is I have midshipmen create Naval Academy-specific Pokemon once we start studying the Pokemon phenomenon of the late 20th century, early 21st century. And the Pokemon I get are unbelievably creative. It's like once you open up the doors, midshipmen, they will push all this creative content at you. And I just worry sometimes they don't have an opportunity to express themselves as creatively as either we would like or they would like. But even so, there's a lot of creativity here in the yard. And it's, it's very funny creativity, which is a good thing, too, because you got to roll with the waves. But hopefully one thing that the brigade will continue to have is a sense of creativity, a sense of the importance of creativity. And even if it's in an official sense or an organized sense, like a band or a choir or a play, that's great. But bring that creativity to the classes as well. The professors really love seeing it. Professor, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much for being here. Very much my pleasure. I look forward to seeing you in my Japan classes very soon. This concludes our interview with Dr. Pennington about the pagoda outside of Moose Hall. We want to thank Dr. Pennington for spending his time with us and for sharing his perspective and experience. 
much. This has been the Midshipman Produced Podcast, Life at the Academy, recording from the Naval Academy's Samson Hall in Annapolis, Maryland. On behalf of the USNA History Department and our Midshipman hosts and producers, thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time.